morning. back to you all and Happy New Year as Dale mentioned. Uh, Sarah and I got back uh, late Sunday um, in time to uh, go to the New Year's Eve party and enjoy some fellowship then. And um, Didn't get a chance to close out the year in Revelation but thanks to Dave for stepping in and filling in in my stead. Um, and so today we are going to finish up Revelation as we just heard read from Revelation 22 and as what seems to be the theme today um, from Dale's songs and Clint's um, message from the table, um, it is well with my soul. You know, there's a song um, out there that speaks to this, and it speaks um, a little bit to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, being in the fiery furnace. And uh, they said uh, to Nebuchadnezzar that uh, even if God doesn't save us from this fire, we know that he will save us from you. Meaning in death, they'll be free. It's that kind of attitude that we should find ourselves in when we think about it being well with our soul, whether it's a bad situation that we're in or a bad season or a good season, to find hope and find that it is well with our soul. And the reason it is well with our soul is because of the hope that we have in Christ. It's the hope that we have and that Jesus is coming again. As Jesus wraps up the incredible revelation to the Apostle John, he tells him three times in chapter 22, I am coming soon. Look at Revelation 22, verse 7. He says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. And verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then again in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The fact that he is coming again is not a threat. It's a promise. Some may see it as a threat, depending on what side of the battle you're on. But it's a promise for those who follow him and obey him. It is as if he is saying, I know you're going through a lot, but hold on, I am coming soon. I remember when I came home from Scotland, uh, it was my, <clears throat> in between my freshman and sophomore years of college, um, and uh, Sarah and I were dating, and I was anticipating seeing her again, but I was having to fly home to Cleveland, and um, when I flew in, I had, to st I had to fly into Little Rock, and I had to lay over overnight, and so... My mom got me a hotel in Little Rock, so I stayed in Little Rock, and I got to Little Rock, the hotel in Little Rock, and had to print off my boarding pass for the next day. My boarding pass said Columbus. I said, uh, that's not right. I'm supposed to be flying into Cleveland. Well, lo and behold, my mom had conspired with Sarah to divert me to Columbus so that they could both meet me at the airport. Um, of course, I didn't know Sarah was there, but seeing her as I got off the plane filled me with a lot of joy. And it was that anticipation of seeing her and seeing my family again that I was looking forward to as every mile passed, you know, on the planes, on the big planes, you can see like where you are on the ocean and stuff, even back in that day. <clears throat> um, but uh, it's that sort of anticipation that we also anticipate the Lord's coming. At least that's what we should be doing. It's not something that we should be, uh, be worried about, but something that we should be hopeful for. And if it's worry that we have, then perhaps our priorities need reflection. 
seeing that the coming Lord meant a blessing for the obedient, as he says in verse 7, or a reward for the one doing well in verse 12, and blessed assurance for the one who is wanting and or for waiting and longing, that's what he says in verse 20, isn't it interesting that the coming Lord tells everyone to come to him? In verse 17, he says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He knows he's coming again. And before that moment of his return, he invites us all to come into a relationship with him. We don't know the exact moment of his coming, right? Matthew 24, verse 36 says, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's what Jesus said. But, what, but we want him to come as quickly as he can. We are exposed to the kind of people Jesus refers to in verse 15. He says the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What a list talked about in our class this morning. But we come into contact with these people every day. We have struggled to overcome being that kind of person ourselves. We have tried to stay on a biblically centered path. We have tried to practice righteousness and holiness that he talks about earlier in chapter 22. But we cannot wait until the battle is over and the victory is won. We cherish the ultimate out with the old and in with the new. We hang on because we know how the journey ends for the faithful. We can become very attached to this world because it's comfortable. But we know the world to come is, is infinitely superior. So we can hopefully say with John, come Lord Jesus. Turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The angels declared that Jesus would come again. Jesus declares that he will come again. But what will happen when he returns? That's going to be our focus of our study this morning. The first thing that will happen is the dead will be raised. In John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning because we're going to look exactly at what scripture says will happen when Jesus returns. And a lot of this is from his own mouth. Um, and others from um, the revelation of his apostles. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
I want you to note here that Jesus says that there will be one resurrection. It would include both the good and the evil. It will happen at the same time, and it's not something that's going to be separated by a thousand years. This is also not referring to those who emerged from the tombs when Christ died on the cross. Matthew 27, 52-53 talks about that. And the reason why we know that is because Jesus specifies that the resurrection of life is for those who have done good and a resurrection of condemnation for those who have done evil. Those are two different things. What we saw happen in Matthew chapter 27 was the saints who had gone to sleep rose from the grave and appeared to those in the city. There's nothing said about those being raised to a resurrection of condemnation. So this is a different resurrection that Jesus is referring to, something to come in the future. And it ties directly into the words of Paul in Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Um, here, Paul says, There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Two categories, one resurrection. But what about those who are alive when he returns? We know that the dead will be raised to a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. But what about those who are living? Well, those who are living will be changed. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 53. Paul, writing here to the Corinthians, says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now after the change, after this change happens... Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So after we are changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up in the air with the Lord. Now I want you to note, I don't know if you caught this or not, but Paul, in both of these letters, to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians, references a final trumpet. <clears throat> See, the revelation that John wrote down had not yet been revealed, had not been spoken to John. Yet Paul shares these truths with knowledge of the trumpets. Revelations chapter 11, or Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 speaks of the final trumpet. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Listen closely. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world is now, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The voice of archangels. The sound of a trumpet. Not only will the dead be raised, the living will be transformed. And what we see in the Revelation and elsewhere is that the kingdom will be delivered to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, verses 22 through 26 this time, a little bit earlier in Paul's writing. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all may be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Those last two verses are important. We'll come back to those. So when Jesus returns, it will not be to set up his kingdom. The kingdom has already been established. It is to deliver it to the Father. Jesus began to reign over his kingdom after his ascension. This was prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Here Daniel is um, recounting uh, a vision that he had. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And additionally, Peter proclaims the following in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. He says, during the sermon at Pentecost, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Christ sits on the throne that was promised to a descendant of David. It is not an earthly throne, it is not an earthly kingdom, of which many of the Jews of that day believed would be established by the Messiah. Instead, it was a spiritual kingdom. It was a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom which is his church. Jesus is currently the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. When Christ returns the kingdom to the Father, this will mark the end of death. Death will be destroyed. To reiterate, what was read moments ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 through 26. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Christ returns and the dead are raised and the, li the living are transformed, that's it. There is no more death. Death has been conquered. So we know that the dead will be raised. That the living will be changed. And we know what happens with the kingdom. But what about the determination of which resurrection one will receive? How will this resurrection of life or resurrection of condemnation be determined? What will happen to the world? 
Well, Scripture tells us the world will be judged. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne of judgment. He has the judgment seat. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and so He is our judge. And Scripture tells us, in Jesus' own words, we're going to look at three different Scriptures here from Matthew, that Jesus will separate the saved from the lost. Matthew 25 first, verses 31 through 33. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So how will this separation be determined? Jesus says he'll separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be, go to the right and the goats will go to the left. Well, how do we determine who's a sheep and who's a goat? Does, does it determine on whether you're bad or not? Sorry, I had to. It's in my blood. Sarah got me a t-shirt about my bad dad jokes for Christmas. Now I just think about it all the time. But Jesus says that people will be judged by their works, by what they do. Turn over a few other chapters, uh, chapters to Matthew 16, verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I want you to note in all three of those verses from Matthew, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he talks about coming in the glory of uh, coming in glory and with angels all around him. He's referring to the end. He will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul talks about this as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So being a Christian doesn't excuse you from judgment, Right? We all have to be judged, and it's the determination of whether we have done good or evil of which we will be judged. Judgment Day will be a day of rewards and of punishment. So Jesus details later in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's two end games here, eternal punishment and eternal life. Reward and punishment, right? Those who have not obeyed the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not 
obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The future of the faithful and unfaithful is clear. Eternal life or eternal punishment. But what will happen to the world, this world that we live in, when Jesus returns? There's a lot of debate over this, but let's look at what Scripture says. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter reveals, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will be, uh, and the and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter reveals that the world will be destroyed. And again, in John's revelation, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what do all these things mean? Some people look at these verses and they try to extrapolate and build uh, a fantastical um, world, a new world that will be created. Um, what we know is that the world that we know it will cease to exist. What happens after that, for me at least, that's up to God. And I greatly anticipate seeing it and being a part of it and hopefully seeing you all there. I don't want to spend my days worrying about what it's going to look like, how, it's, how quickly it's going to happen. I want to spend my days making sure that I'm there and spend my days making sure that those that I love and those who are around me join me there because we know what the future holds for those who believe and those who do not. Jesus says in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, and those who do not will be condemned. <clears throat> Believers should be ready at all times for his return. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, he says, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must always be ready, for the Son of Man is also coming at an hour that you do not expect. We don't know when Jesus will return. He may return now, or now, or later. There's a sign I saw a lot when I was in uh, elementary school and middle school growing up. It was a sign outside of a house that we passed by on the bus every day that says, Jesus could come today. That's a good reminder, because it's true. We never know when Jesus is going to return. But if you return today, would you be ready? How are you prepared? We need to be busy 
doing the Lord's work until the Lord returns. That's what Jesus reveals in his parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. He says, as they, uh, as, he heard the, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell this parable because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. We've received our minas. We've received our gift from Christ. That is the gift of eternal life through salvation that is available only in Him. So let's get to work, church. It's 2019. We need to be busy doing the Lord's work until He returns. And we need to be graciously anticipating His return so that we can join with John and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Because we're ready. Are you ready? Are you prepared? If we can assist you this morning with your walk, if you desire to be baptized for the remission of your sins and join with the children of God, now is the time, of course, that you can come forward and make that request known as we stand and sing.